For much of this century, there has been a single story about global food insecurity. It existed only outside the United States, and problems were rooted in agriculture. And this single story lent itself to straightforward solutions. Today, as demographics change, geopolitics shift, economies grow and decline, COVID rages and climate change accelerates, the answers aren't so simple. I'm Caitlin Welsh, director of the CSIS Global Food Security Program and host of the Reset the Table podcast. Join me as we make room at the table for fresh ideas, for solving food insecurity around the world and right here at home. My guest today is Ambassador Erthren Cousin, who's been a leader in global food security for decades. She served as U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. agencies in Rome from 2009 to 2012 and Executive Director of the U.N. World Food Program from 2012 to 2017. Today, Ambassador Cousin is Distinguished Professor at Stanford University's Institute for International Studies and a Distinguished Fellow at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, among many other accolades and positions of service. Ambassador Cousin joins us today from Berlin. Welcome. It is so good to be here with you today. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you. Of course. You became ambassador to the UN agencies in Rome, to the FAO, the WFP, and EFAD, not long after the world's last major global food crisis, which was 2007 and 2008. And it seemed to me at that time that the world coalesced around one seemingly elegant solution to the global food security crisis, which was to solve global food insecurity, we simply needed to increase agricultural production among smallholder producers. Today, we're facing the most severe food crisis since then, and perhaps this whole century, both in the United States and around the world. But the causes of food insecurity are different. The ways that food insecurity manifests are different, and the solutions might be different. So based on your decades of experience, do you think that today's food insecurity crisis is an inflection point? Are things going to be different after now? I sure hope so. The reality is that when we as a global community sat down in response to the last food crisis and, as you said, developed a solution that focused on smallholder farmers, while that wasn't wrong, it wasn't enough. And what we know now is that what we need is systems change, structural change, that, just, that doesn't stop at the farm gate that we need to address those challenges of logistics, including transport and warehouse and storage, as well as refrigeration and consumer access. And then what we also know is that because it's a systems challenge, what we harvest is not what necessarily reaches the consumer. We lose between 30 and 40% in post-harvest loss because of all of those logistic challenges. Let me just give you a sense of how large that 30 to 40% is. That's more than all the food aid and food assistance that is provided by the global community on the continent of Africa on an annual basis. So just imagine if we maintained our commitment to humanitarian response, but also addressed the challenges of food waste and loss through supporting a food systems solution, as opposed to just an increased production solution, we could begin to give meaning to that phrase, build back better. One thing that I find is that people, even inside the food security community, will equate producing food with food security. If we have enough food, 
then we will be food secure. And you just introduced a lot of other elements to the system. You introduced transportation, trade, refrigeration, consumer access, so many other elements. So how is it that we can expand mindset so that it's not just about producing food, but it's so many other things necessary so that we can have food security? What a great question. And thank you. Because that mantra of we don't need to produce more food, we need to address issues of poverty and access, ignores the challenges that I've just described, as well as the reality that we grow more commodities than what is required for the kilocalorie needs of the entire population. We don't grow enough nutritious food to support of the availability and affordability of nutritious food for the entire global community. And so it's that kind of mindset change and recognition of the difference that may seem to someone listening to us today as a nuanced difference, but is so critical to the reality of what's produced on the farm, what's available to the consumer, and what provides the kind of food security that supports the health, as well as the calorie needs of each person who consumes food. If you don't mind, I want to turn just for a few minutes to what could be different about our approach to global food security as a result of the pandemic. But also, even if the pandemic hadn't happened, we were seeing things that that should have indicated that we should be changing our approach. So one thing is something that you alluded to when we first started talking, which is about the solution lying in producing more commodities. If we produce more commodities, the world will be more food secure. But it's not as simple as that, because when it comes down to it, we're not producing the food that we need for healthy people. We know that just as in the United States, the food that we subsidize in the global community is food that is the grains, and that's reflected in our diet. We know that in the global agriculture system, that what we subsidize are the grains for the most part. We wheat, rice, corn, and soy, which as a result make up about 60% of all of the calories consumed globally. Wow. The challenge that we have is to support at the appropriate levels greater access to and affordability of a more diverse set of commodities. Yeah. At the outset of the pandemic last year, I heard it was actually a colleague of mine say something along the lines that food production would not be disrupted in the United States. So therefore, we're not going to have a food security problem in the United States during the pandemic. And I was like, "Uh oh, that's that, that's not the case. And what we're probably going to see is the highest levels of food insecurity in our own country this whole century. At the same time, we were producing commodities, higher levels of many commodities than we had in many years. But it's not the same thing as having food security for people. We witness the reality of the truth of the statement you just made in the early days of the COVID response, in the earliest days of the COVID response, because we began to recognize how vulnerable so many households in the United States are and the lack of access to disposable income or savings so that when the economy 
closed in order to address the challenges of COVID, what we found was that you suddenly had our two food chains, one that supports the institutions and one that supports the food system, we saw them both fail. We saw the system that supports retail recover fairly quickly. We remember those early days when there was not enough eggs on the shelf and you were limited to how many eggs you could buy or how much butter you could buy. That food value chain that supported the hotels, the institutions, and the schools failed and failed in a way that Americans were astonished to see farmers plowing fields under, milk being poured down drains, and livestock being culled because there was lack of market, even lack of uh, processing facilities for those animals. At the same time that we saw milk poured down drains, you had lines at food banks for miles in some states. And that was directly related to the fact that our food system did not have a plan for this type of catastrophic emergencies. The way many of us described it was our very efficient food systems lack agility and resilience, even here in the United States. Starting in April of last year, at the beginning of the pandemic, the Census Bureau started to survey the U.S. population, many impacts of the pandemic, including food insufficiency. And what we've found, it spiked a couple of times in the year plus, spiked around the holidays, and it's been pretty much declining since then. So actually, the last week's survey was the lowest levels of food insecurity that we've seen perhaps this whole pandemic. We might see in the United States the highest levels of food insecurity this entire century. Luckily, those rates are falling, but you still have huge disparities among households based on race. One thing, though, is that you still have over double the rates of food insecurity among black households compared to white households and Hispanic households compared to white households. When you also break it down by gender, women are consistently more food insecure than men. There's a lot of things that we did to address it, some at the production level, some at the household level. But what do you think the United States did well and where do you think we still need some work? What the United States did well was we recognized that this was not an individual household problem or a state problem. And the Congress passed the bills that were necessary to support both the, the agricultural community, those farmers that I spoke about earlier who did not have markets for their produce or their livestock, and also to support those consumers. With the access to one-time payments that were provided to families that gave them the income that they needed to support the purchase of food, with the farm-to-box program that provided an opportunity for the USDA to purchase commodities and then those commodities to be distributed to those who needed access to food. So food became a part of the response that the government at the federal level and then at the state and local level embraced in working with the civil society operators to ensure that we built the programs quickly 
if we had an emergency plan in our back pocket and we would never have had those lines, but we did respond to those lines and to those actions of the farmers by providing those types of programs and the investments that were necessary to address the challenges that families were experiencing as well as the challenges that the agriculture community was experiencing. It made me proud because I have the challenge of of talking to operators in the developing world where that kind of safety net, government safety net, to support all of their citizens. They neither had the capacity nor the economic ability to provide. And so while we've seen a significant spike in the number of chronically malnourished children as a result of the pandemic in the developing world, we did not have a acute spike in malnutrition and, and food insecurity that was more than a matter of weeks. And I think that is something that we as Americans should embrace and be proud of. It's not easy for us to recognize that we're lucky to have the social safety net system in place that we do have. Certainly there are ways to improve it. I know that. But we already had a robust safety net system in place and a really robust charitable food system to fill in gaps when, you know, it might take a while to enroll in SNAP or WIC. We really needed both in the crisis and we were lucky to have both. I can recall talking to people from other countries who said that it's going to be worse here because we don't have the social safety net system that you have in the United States. Correct. But don't get me wrong, you know, we had to increase the amount in our SNAP program and in our WIC program and expand the roles. Prior to COVID, many in the hunger relief community in the United States were in advocacy mode because there was a threat to removing 150,000 Americans from the roles. All of that was backburnered as a result of the COVID response crisis, but those threats are still out there. And so we need to ensure that that safety net is truly adequate to support the needs of our most vulnerable Americans, not just during times of COVID, but even on an ongoing basis. Maybe this gets back to our original starting point, which is it's not just things that necessarily have to do with food that will ultimately improve food security. So when I look at the whole suite of relief provisions that have been passing, it's eviction protection. It's all of the different you know stimulus checks that families are receiving. And then really importantly, the child tax credit that was just passed. I think especially that for households that are um, middle and lower income that will be receiving those every month for any purpose. You know, it can be for school, it can be for food, it can be for tutoring, it can be for anything. I think that th- all those things combined are going to go a long way to improving food security in addition to bolstering SNAP and WIC programs in our country. Absolutely right. And I think I'd be remiss if I did not add that those poverty rates that you were talking about that require those programs also drive not just hunger, but malnutrition. And malnutrition in the United States is less about wasting or stunting and much more about obesity. 
and the lack of access to enough income to support the more nutritious food and using those food dollars to purchase low nutritional value, high calorie, high fat foods that result in the types of overweight and obesity crisis that we are now witnessing in the United States that played out during COVID as a comorbidity factor during the most significant periods of COVID death increases. And so we can't disconnect the health of our population from the access to capital, the access to the other resources that you talked about with housing, et cetera, as well as to that, that need for access to affordable, nutritious food. And that's not a problem over there, just over there. It's a problem domestically in the United States as well. When it comes to high rates of obesity, one thing that continually shocks me is that of young adults aged 18 to 24, 19% are not eligible for military service because of obesity in our country. So that's one in five are not eligible for, for military service. So it affects Americans across our country. Again, coming back to this idea that there are simple solutions, which I think that we both agree that there are no silver bullets to these things. But oftentimes people will say something like, you know, it's about food deserts. You just got to put good grocery stores in, you know, in low income neighborhoods, and that's going to solve the problem. I think that's important. That's not going to solve it. I think you're absolutely right. That alone is not going to solve it. There was a study that was performed about four years ago now with a economist from Stanford and from the University of Chicago that identified the lack of impact on nutritional outcomes and particularly on obesity of grocery stores in inner cities, that it did not change consumer demand. That we also need education programs that support the consumer demand for and purchase of more nutritious food. We also need to ensure that it's not just the grocery store being present in the community, but it also provides for affordability of more nutritious foods. We know that the purchase of produce, particularly green vegetables is oftentimes outside the affordability of those who have limited income. So addressing the challenges of, of physical availability through grocery stores or other retail facilities, addressing the challenge of information and knowledge about what is necessary for the health of the body, as well as to address challenges of obesity and other effects of non-communicable diseases. And we know that affordability is a requirement. And then we rec need to recognize that, yes, this is a problem in those communities we often call food deserts because of the lack of access to grocery stores or affordable nutritious food. But we also need to recognize the problem is in rural America. We are seeing increased lack of, of access to affordable foods in small towns across America where we now have regional purchasing centers that are anchored by large big box stores or other regional retail outlets 
where the downtowns, the areas that seniors or low-income individuals who don't have cars would have purchased their food in the past, no longer have a grocery store or any other facility in that strip that remains in what is left of downtown for them to access affordable, nutritious food. So we need to think about this as a problem that affects all of us and not just those who live in urban centers. That's an excellent point, because when I think about food deserts, I automatically think of urban centers. But you're absolutely right that they exist in rural areas and in urban areas. So right now, USDA, for very excellent reasons, is our lead agency when it comes to food-related social safety net programs and everything related to agriculture. But the solutions we're talking about have to do with transportation, with education, with housing, a whole host of other things. What do you think about U.S. government leadership? And do you think there should be some coordination among all these different departments and agencies whose activities ultimately affect food security? The simple answer is yes. Of course, we need coordination across all of our agencies to ensure that Americans have access to all of the tools that they need in order to live life to their fullest potential, whether it's access to affordable housing, education-related tools, it is the healthcare system that they require, or it is the support for the food that they consume. And that is why many across the food and nutrition security community in the United States are calling on the Biden-Harris administration to host a nutrition summit that would bring together all of the agencies under the White House's authority, and many are in conversation with members of Congress to support their participation in this summit as well, to begin that dialogue that we need to create that coordination that is required to provide the structural changes that will change lives and not just one particular issue in the life of those that that depend upon need and require U.S. assistance. And that type of a White House-led dialogue has not happened in the United States since... I could be wrong, but I think it was since the early 1970s, since President Nixon. It wasn't even then. Oh, wow. The last White House summit was in 1969. You're right on the time frame. And that's more than 50 years ago. And if you think about it, though, out of that summit came a number of the programs that we are talking about today. The WIC program, which is the Supplemental Nutrition Program for Women, Infants, and Children. The School Breakfast Program. The Consumer Protections Nutrition Fact Panel all came out of that conference. And so if we can identify similar potential outcomes that are cross-government, that provide for addressing these challenges that we've been talking about here today, I think the White House would embrace the possibility of supporting uh, such a dialogue. I think that this speaks to the fact that it's both a time of incredible need and an incredibly exciting time to be working on these issues in the United States. The first summit in 1960, or the last summit in 1969, there were significant outcomes. And those outcomes include the SNAP program as we know it today, the National School Lunch Program, the WIC program, the School Breakfast Program. So 
if the Biden-Harris administration was going to convene such a summit today, what would be the outcome of that summit that the community of interest would embrace as significant and would provide value to the families that we look to serve? For the White House, it will be important that the summit addresses some of the racial inequity issues that impact uh, so many families across America that is a priority for this administration. So as those conversations unfold, I'm looking forward to the dialogue between the community of interest, the White House and the Congress about the what is possible. I mean, I think one thing we can say for certain is that there would be a ton of interest in an event like this across, you know, civil society organizations, across, you know, our charitable food system, across the private sector. So many departments and agencies have a role to play here. So when we begin to think about what is it that we need to to change in our global production system in order to support not just the environmental health, but human health. We know that of the 6,000 different plant species across the globe that are used as food, only nine, sugarcane, wheat, rice, maize, potatoes, cassava, palm oil, contribute to 66% of all total crop production. And of that 66%, the consumption of wheat, rice, maize, and corn is 60% of all the total calories that we consume. In order to support the environmental health and ecological health, that needs to change. We need to increase the production and support for the increased production of more diverse species of plants that will provide affordable access to more produce, more protein from that produce, as well as from other food plants and plant species that today are not provided with the financial subsidies that are necessary to support the production levels that are required for the access to affordable foods in those different categories that we need to nourish the planet, not just feed the planet, but to nourish all of the people on the planet. Yeah, absolutely. And I have a a statistic here that if you look at the dietary guidelines that countries put out, they overwhelmingly recommend high amounts of fruits and vegetables. And if we were to look at the, the amount of food that we produce, and which you just mentioned, overwhelmingly emphasizes grains, we produce only 35% of the fruits and vegetables we need to meet the global dietary recommendations. Exactly. We need to embrace the investment and the subsidy support in the developed and in the developing world for those fruits and vegetables and other legumes, nuts that provide for that additional micronutrient diet support. The challenge is there's a blind spot here, and that is my friends in the ag community immediately raised this, is that today our agricultural production system uses 70% of all of the fresh water 
that we consume. The production, increased production of fruits and vegetables will increase the need for water throughout, not just for the for the cultivation, but for the processing and the consumption of those products. We also need to increase the availability of more improved seeds that will support the increased production of fruits, vegetables, and legumes and nuts that do not require a significant increase in water or a significant increase in land mass under cultivation. We cannot continue to increase the amount of land that we use in order to increase the diversity of the foods that we produce. We know that we are, our agriculture system today is detrimentally impacting the biodiversity of other species, both plants and animals. And that if we were to continue to produce with using the same tools and seeds that we have available to us today, it will require us to continue to increase the land under cultivation, further threatening the planetary boundaries in relationship to biodiversity. And so it requires more innovation as well in the tools that we use to support our agricultural production. And I think that's a, a great place. This brings us full circle because at the very beginning, we were talking about how it's not just about production, it's about all other elements of food systems and particularly fruits and vegetables. Those are very sensitive food chains. They require cold chains. They require you know, very specific transportation methods, for example, to increase the amount of fruits and vegetables available, as well as other nutritious foods like fish and dairy and things like that. You need investments at many other parts of food systems. Exactly. But you also need innovation, which means we need more digital tools to support how we irrigate, when we plant, how we plant. And we also need to embrace the opportunity that CRISPR and other biotech tools offer us for advanced gene editing and advanced plant breeding. We, in, in many places, the, the community of actors are unable to differentiate between GMOs and the CRISPR-supported gene editing. And as a result, you have negative um, uh, crit critique and criticism of, of biotech tools. But that is science that has helped us solve this pandemic problem and can also help solve our agricultural production challenges. Thank you so much. I could talk to you for hours. I know we're at a hard stop and maybe we can invite you back on later this year to follow up. I would love to come back on again. Terrific. That's it for today's episode of Reset the Table. You can subscribe on Apple or Spotify, and follow us on Twitter at CSIS Food. Until next time.